Hi there. I'm Michael C. Patterson, your host for the MindRamp Podcasts. In this episode, Dr. Jeff Darling and I discuss glial cells, those fascinating and underappreciated brain cells that are estimated to make up at least half of our total brain cells. Dr. Jeff Darling currently works for Life Molecular Imaging, where he works across the fields of neuroscience, neuroimmunology, and neuroinflammation. Jeff and I discovered that we share a fascination with glial cells. So our discussion ranged across a whole variety of different topics, like the different types of glial cells, the role of myelinization, the, uh, the insulation of nerve cells, and also about, the, about brain plasticity and neural pruning and about connectivity of the brain, how the, uh, the functional modules of the brain are connected and also how the two hemispheres connect. Take a listen. Glial cells, I think, were initially like almost characterized as packing peanuts. They were just there to help the neurons. And it, that's obviously not the case. They do a lot more. What are glial cells and how are they different from neurons? Yeah. So, so you know, growing up or when you're taking a psychology class or you're just listening to the news, when you think of the brain, the first thing you usually think of is neurons. We all, we've all probably heard of neurons to some degree with, you know, dendrites, the cell body and axon, the main three components, and that that's what communicates both within the brain, but also downstream to muscles, to, uh, you know, e external stimuli. But what often gets overlooked is the fact that that's not the only cell population in the brain. We also have glial cells. And to what degree the ratio of one to the other is, I think, often debated in that we have billions and billions of neurons. Um, some reports have said that you might have as many as 10 times as many glial cells in the brain. I think, I think the ratio is a lot smaller than that. I think it's, it's closer probably to even one to one, but. Um, I, I think it depends on where the, the, the studies lie. Again, there's often disagreement in science, um, mm -hmm. which is healthy. But even well, how the heck do you count these things? They're so yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's I mean, somewhere there's a graduate student whose very thesis is probably doing just that <laughs> <laughs> and, and using some kind of algorithm to, to aid in it, I hope, because otherwise mm -hmm. they'll be there forever. Right. Um, but even within glial cells, there's different types. So there's astrocytes, microglia, oligodendrocytes, probably the main ones you heard talking, uh, discussed. Um, and they play a very pivotal role in neural function as well. So whether that's nurturing and supporting neurons themselves, providing a cushion around them or protection, um, reuptake of neurotransmitters, for example, uh, so signaling molecules from cell to cell, Microglia, the innate immune cell within the brain, uh, its job is to survey its environments, look for invaders, uh, to phagocytose or eat up cells that maybe uh, need pruned or are dying or have some mm -hmm. um, genetic coding issues, to put it uh, more simply, um, or maybe they prune some of the synaptic, synaptic connectivity between neurons. Um, so there's a wide array of activities that glial cells do, but because they are so important to overall neuronal function, uh, when, when things go awry, they also can carry dire consequences as well, which I think yeah. is an aspect of neurodegeneration that's getting heavy thought. So just to reiterate, there are four important types of glial cells, 
astrocytes, which look like little stars, and they wrap themselves around the synapses that connect neurons and seem to help regulate the flow of neurotransmitters. Then there are microglia, which are integral to the brain's immune system. Then there are two kinds of glial cells that produce myelin that gets wrapped around neurons to insulate them and help regulate the speed of transmission. Oligodendrocytes are found in the brain and central nervous system, and Schwann cells are found in the peripheral nervous system. You mentioned synaptic pruning, that microglia perform synaptic pruning, and just so that we can help everybody understand what that means. At the end, in e on each neuron, there are dendrites, there are arms that come out, and on each arm, there are tiny little buds called synapses, which are the places that communicate with other neurons. These synapses grow and retract very quickly, kind of in, in response to our learning and our not learning. And I think one of the interesting things to remember is that synaptic pruning, meaning the, the reduction of synapses, is not necessarily a bad thing. It often is it's like a Michelangelo sculptor. It's the taking away that reveals the statues. It's the taking away of connections that creates better thinking. Am I characterizing this right? Yeah, I think you actually put it much more eloquently and elegantly than, than I could have. Um, so when we think of synapses and the forming of connections between cells, we often think the, the more the better, right? But in reality, yeah. with and I think learning and memory is the perfect example, is as we as creatures exist in this experiential framework and that as we go about the world, we're seeing, we're learning. And that kind of feels like an important part of, of humanity is, is the ability to look off into the landscape and, and learn from it and pick up information. But to do that learning, there needs to be some kind of cellular and molecular change that takes place as well. And as we put salience or importance to the things that we learn, that might result in added synaptic connectivity between certain neurons. And as in the same sense, we learn that things are unimportant, you might want to get rid of some of that synaptic connectivity. And so there are cell populations that help in that pruning, microglia, for example, that might reduce the amount of connectivity between neurons so that what is important is kept, what is unimportant is lost. And you also have to remember that there's some electrical conductance that takes place in the brain. And if mm -hmm. you have too many synaptic connections, that might also lead to things like seizures. Uh, right, right. So, 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 so pruning is often good. And throughout the course of development, it happens on a natural level. So as you're growing as a baby to puberty to adulthood, there are, are periods where you want more pruning than you would expect because you want to focus on what helps you as an organism survive. Yeah, one of the startling things I learned about you know, early brain development is that the, like a very young brain, I forget exactly when, has, has an enormous amount of neurons, far more than we have as adults. It's like the brain has to get filled and say, ah, and then what's important? And whatever is not important to this child in this environment gets pruned away. So where I go then <laughs> with, with the idea of microglia if microglia are actually pruning synapses, that seems like, you know, you could make an argument, they are in control of the neurons. They are structuring the neurons. The same thing I think might be said for astrocytes. And, and what astro one of the things that 
astrocytes do, I think, is clean up the neurotransmitters between the synapses. I mean, you could say, you could characterize it as cleaning up, just sort of a garbage thing, or you could characterize it as a regulation of the amount of <laughs> neurotransmitters between, which seems to be a much more active role for, for glial cells. This is speculation on my part. Does this have any, does it resonate at all with you or am I just going it's, off? On a, it's an it? interesting question. So so I think maybe you can think of it as as the question of are astrocytes and, and microglia the puppeteers and neurons are the puppets? Uh, Good way to uh, put albeit, it, yeah. Albeit large puppets that are, are, are functionally what's driving the bus. Um, I think that the jury is still out as, as to what the greatest contributors overall mm. or in terms of importance are. Um, I think they play a greater role in uh, learning and memory cognition, uh, disease onset. I think they play a much larger role than we gave them credit for. And I think uh, you're right to say that they were once viewed as just the packing peanuts or the cushions and, mm. and, and the fuel sources for cells. I think they do a lot more than that, but I still think, uh, to what degree uh, their importance is underlooked cannot be overstated. Um, unfortunately, we live in a, a, a neuroscience world and neuronal focus. Um, so a lot of the research has been focused on that. But what I think you're right. saying, especially in the last decade and a half, or I, well, I guess if you ask an astrocyte or microglia expert, they'll say it's always been there. Uh, but, the, <laughs> but the research is really starting to grow in terms of its understanding and importance. Yeah. So my admit, admitted ignorance as a neuroscientist is because I was probably to some degree siloed in my learning. But now I think, uh, I'll put it this way, the graduate students at UT Austin knew more about microglia as graduate students than I did as a postdoc when I arrived at UT Austin. So mm. both kudos to UT Austin on, on, on its strong education and its swath array that it's teaching its students, but also kudos to the field of science for developing beyond the what I had 20 years ago. Right. Another type of gliocella are Schwann cells, which uh, wrap myelin, as I understand it, around the neurons in our arms and legs. The uh, oligodendrocytes play that function in the brain of producing myelin, which is this fatty sort of insulation. Are Schwann cells the only glial cells that appear in the rest of the body, or are all of the other glial cells exclusive to the brain? Um, I, I think there are a few other examples of developmental glial cells in the peripheral nervous system. Mm. I think Schwann cells probably are the most important, get the most press. But myelin, you're right, and, and you described it so well as an insulator. Uh, myelin, think of as the, the rubber around the electrical cord that allows for conductance to take place faster and more efficiently, and often is, is for certain diseases and disorders, failure of myelin or death or sloughing off of myelin is what results in a lot of degradation of cell frameworks and, and neuronal loss um, and, and a lot of movement disorders, for example, uh, right. arise as a result of that. Uh, so oligodendrocytes, uh, uh, beyond astrocytes and microglia, are another really important cell population within the brain beyond neurons. So the oligodendrocytes, they uh, go through the central nervous system? So central those... nervous system, so spinal cord, brain, and... Uh, oh, okay. Not just the brain, but the, the oligodendrocytes are also in the central nervous system. 
Correct. And that's the big delineation between Schwann cells and oligodendrocytes is CNS versus PNS. To help you with the acronyms, CNS stands for the central nervous system and PNS stands for the peripheral nervous system, the nerves that extend out to your arms and legs. Yeah, myelin is fascinating. I mean, the, the, the initial take that you usually get is it's just this, it's insulation. But one of the interesting things for me in terms of development and aging is that as you begin to learn and move things towards more habit and routine, it seems like myelin plays a role in that, in that it wraps a, a bunch of neurons together that seem to signal together and work together to perform a useful activity and it insulates that it, it sort of stabilizes it it strikes me that like as we get older there is this idea that we become uh, more rigid in our thinking if more and more of our neurons are wrapped by more and more of the myelin and sort of stabilizing it that's a good thing because it stabilizes our thinking but i wonder if it also um somehow decreases creativity or the potential for creativity. Am I putting too much on the the, the structural uh, importance of myelin? You you might be. I, I'm, and it's not that I don't think that that strengthening of, of myelination is important in terms of longevity of a certain framework of thinking or idea. I think what's more likely is you have uh, just natural neuronal degeneration, loss of connectivity and other aspects. Mm -hmm. In neuroscience, we have this term plasticity, right? Plastic. Mm -hmm. It's the idea that uh, as, as a newborn baby, you might lose a portion of your brain and other areas can grow and take over the aspects of, of that mechanistic control. So, um, um, and, and as you age, your ability to adapt to those changes lessens. Um, to what degree myelin is involved in that, I'm ignorant, but I do think uh, there is a decrease in that plastic nature in the aged brain that um, is maybe what makes us more rigid and fixed in our mm. in our thought processes. The other aspect of myelin that I that I found fascinating was that the insulation is not continuous; it's broken up, and and um, the implication of that is that the speed can be regulated. Well, part of that is so you have action potentials, you have this all or none effect where you fire an action potential and and, and the benefit of, of that striation is that you can reanimate that signal along the way so that you're as efficient as possible in sending that action potential and also that you don't have a loss in its strength so that it can carry on from neuron to neuron so that the signal not only propagates faster because of myelin, but that signal remains strong. Explain connectivity a little bit. I mean, we've said that the neurons communicate with each other, glial cells communicate, and with neurons, the myelin will wrap certain neurons, which means that this, that line of connectivity is strengthened. But beyond that, when we talk about connectivity, at least in my understanding, we're also talking about how diff different parts of the brain, different modules of the brain interact with each other. Yeah. Um, so when we think of the brain, we, we, we think of unique structures that we highlight as having certain roles, but they're also highly interconnected within each other. 
And often you'll see differences in the degree of connectivity from one person to the next. And a part of that is, again, talking about um, habit forming, um, strengthening of certain behaviors. Um, and part of that might be sex differences. So, but there are some studies that show that uh, inner hemispheric connectivity is stronger in the female population versus more lateralized connectivity is strengthened in a male population. To what degree that's true or not, but it's an example where differences in connectivity between neurons and, and regions of the brain might also have an impact on behavioral output. Okay, let me let me stop there and make sure I understood what you said because you you opened the door for me to talk about <laughs> hemispheric differences. Which, sure, which, <laughs> which which admittedly is probably of all the topics we've covered is my greatest blind spot. So you're, you're, <laughs> you're more expert than I am now. The difference between male and female connectivity. Were you saying that female connectivity, female communication, is stronger within each hemisphere? Like there's more. Uh, or, connecting the two of them. So, so oh, okay. So there's more so, back so and forth. Hemispheres, there's white matter tracks that connect them so that they can communicate back and forth. And there have been some studies that show that that connectivity is strengthened in a female population versus a male population where you see more connectivity on either side. I mean, it's fascinating that there may be sex differences in the connectivity between the hemispheres. The idea that Ian McGilchrist has put forth is that we function best when there is communication between both hemispheres, because each hemisphere has a very different perspective on reality, and we need both. But the right hemisphere has a more holistic experiential take on the world. The left hemisphere is much more symbolic and creates a sort of virtual reality representation of what's going on, which is useful for analysis. But then it's got to put it back to the right hemisphere to integrate it back into our holistic experiential self. So greater connectivity back and forth would be seen as more useful. Thanks so much, Jeff. This has been fascinating, and I hope you enjoyed it. Absolutely. Thank you for, uh, for having me. Well, it was fascinating for me to connect with Dr. Jeff Darling and to pick his prodigious brain about glial cells, myelinization, brain plasticity, and brain connectivity. The more we learn about the workings of the human brain, the more mysterious and wonderful it becomes. What minds we have. I have two other podcasts with Dr. Darling. In one, he talks more specifically about sex differences in the brain, and in the other, we discuss inflammaging, the connection between the aging process and chronic inflammation. Well, thanks for joining us. Until next time, I hope you're doing all you can to live long and live well.